Welcome to another episode of Health Creators. This is Liv, and I'm joined here today by Shivang, CEO and founder of Plain Optica. And today we're going to be talking about being a cockroach. <laughs> um, but first of all, Shivang, uh, thank you so much for coming. And can you give us an elevator pitch for Plain Optica? Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so I'm Siobhan, co-founder and CEO of Planoptica. We make medical devices and digital health technologies to improve access to vision exams and eyeglasses all around the world. Awesome. So let's dive into the topic of discussion mm -hmm. today. What do we mean by being a cockroach? And um, I know that we discussed this last night, essentially, yeah. um, about about how, um, you know, it's not always glamorous being a founder, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, this, it's a funny story. It's an, uh, I was being, uh, I was in deep diligence with an angel group. And, you know, I said this answer because you just have to sometimes as a founder reflect on the absurdity of fundraising and diligence and things like that. And, and this person said, oh, how do I know you're resilient, you know? and. At that time, I was probably mid-30s, had PhD, postdoc, and there were a lot of already factors in life and metrics that were, one would have said this person's resilient. And so I asked the, the angel, hey, what, ask me what animal I am. You know, and I, he expected that, oh, he's talking to a founder, I'm going to say dragon or tiger or, <laughs> you know, eagle. And, and I just, with a deadpan straight face, said cockroach. And... It made him laugh, but I, and then I explained him why. Why why we founders are cockroaches, right? Cockroaches have been around forever, hundreds, hundreds of millions of years. You can't kill them, no matter how hard you try. They can survive anywhere. They're resilient, mm. right? They're adaptable. Um, they're tough. And I feel like the cockroach is the mascot of the entrepreneur. Yeah. Uh, and it's both kind of serious and really just absurd and silly, right? And I think you have to have a bit of that silliness and joy to laugh at the absurdity that you have to go through being a founder, especially in health tech. Because there is so much absurdity in health tech, you think? Yeah, I think so. I mean, being a founder in general is hard, and in health mm -hmm. tech, it's even harder. You have regulations that are less funding. Yeah. Time um, to develop your product takes much more time and resources and team. Um, and these parameters create a lot of extra challenges and you know if you you have to be able to sometimes step back and laugh at it have you ever been shocked by how long uh you know things take um, <laughs> i uh, yes of course yeah. definitely uh and i guess the more experience you have the wiser you get you you know you think you're better at predicting and yet you know that truism that'll take twice as long and twice the budget kind of you just see that a lot you know with mm. your own stuff or, or companies that mentor and advise and um it's because these are hard problems we're trying to solve right these aren't yeah. like a, a simple app or a widget that we're trying to make we're, we're trying to make a medical device or a medical technology something that have health impact and you know i know there's this like philosophy of uh, move fast and break things you don't get mm. to break things in healthcare you get one shot and you got to do it right so yeah. Um, to do it well means to be rigorous and to like thoroughly prove out your stuff and clinically validate it and develop something that's usable. So 
it's hard and it takes that's why it takes such a long time because of the clinical validation clinical validation i mean that's just making sure your your thing is safe and efficacious but let's say you want to make something that's easy to use by non-physicians or you want to make something that doesn't require you know two weeks of training right you have to think about ergonomics and human factors and how different kinds of people around the world with different skill levels, with different frameworks of how they use technology might use it incorrectly, and then you have to kind of design for mm. that, right? So just design and taking into account all these other variables of use are, are, are hard, right? Are, are you guys a patient-facing solution? Our device is used by optometrists, ophthalmologists. Okay. It's used by governments and NGOs. It's used by optical retailers and opticians. Mm. Um, and our, our tech takes about half an hour to an hour to train. Um, but when we work in global health settings with NGOs, they will have community health workers use the device. They'll have nurses. Sometimes mm. they'll have volunteers. And they could be in a variety of age ranges and experiences. So, you know, we have to design for the generalist to be able to pick up our device understand how to use it quickly with minimal training and to be able to use it accurately and repeatedly every time. Is it like a software or a hardware? Ours is a medical device. So it's a a piece of hardware. Um, We designed it from the ground up. It took about six and a Mm -hmm. half years. Um, I have three other co-founders and we have an amazing team um, that's split between Boston and Madrid. And yeah, it's a it's a piece of hardware that you look through. Kind of looks like a futuristic set of binoculars from Star Wars, <laughs> and um, it's just not hardware that we developed. We had to do the ergonomics about it. We had to mm. design the optics from the ground up. Um, the algorithms team has designed very sophisticated algorithms, and and evolved this whole uh, you know unified thing. And and that's why our device is so accurate and easy to use because we've attacked the problem from all angles. We didn't just say, oh, we're gonna use standard optics yeah. and tweak an algorithm. Um, we did everything custom. So I look through the binoculars and then what can you tell me about We'll my measure eyes? your refractive errors. So we'll yeah. measure the optical power of your eye, and yeah. which, is a, um, which is a very, very good estimate of the glasses you would need to correct your vision. And we've done clinical yeah. studies and randomized control trials where we've shown that you know, for 85 plus percent of patients um, that it actually just is equivalent to their prescription that they oh, would cool. get by doing the which is better one or two. Um, and so in global health settings, this is really important because there's just not enough optometrists in these global health settings to do the full-blown subjective exam. Yeah. And if someone has access to uh, you know, a clinician and can go through the full mm-hmm. gold standard exam, that's what they should get. But if you're in a setting where you can't get that and there's 1.1 billion people around the world who don't have the glasses they need, you know, getting a technology... Did you say 1.1 billion yeah. people? Yeah. Whoa. About two-thirds of the world needs and wears glasses. Are, like, are like kind of blind. Not blind, <laughs> but, you know, about, yeah. it's roughly, like, depending on which country yeah. you look at, it's, like, some in some Asian countries now it's much higher and mm. other countries a little lower, but it's, like, something like two-thirds of the world, like, roughly. Need um, glasses need but glasses. don't have them? No, no, they, they have them. Oh, two-thirds. But there's 1.1 billion, so there's something like 4 billion eyeglass wearers in the world, mm. something like that. And there are 1.1 billion people who don't have the glasses they need on wow. top of right? And so when you think about it, right, like a $10 prescription pair of glasses yeah. can fundamentally change this person's life if they have a bad, pres- you know, bad vision. 
if they're a kid, they're going to do bad in school. If they, if they can't read, if they're elderly, they're more prone to falling or dependent on their family members. If they're a, a, mm. you know, a worker like in a, on a farm or a factory or something, right? This affects their productivity, their economic livelihood. Yeah. So it just affects all age ranges, all demographics. Um, and the solution is a you know, $10 pair of glasses. The problem is getting access to the prescription getting access to the, you know, the eye care professional to get a prescription. Um, problem is getting uh, physical access to, mm. to glasses. And, and, and sometimes there's a cultural problem of, like, people don't know they have poor vision. They just kind of adapt. And, you know, so um, that's where governments and NGOs and optical retailers and doctors have to kind of raise awareness of this issue. And, and what our technology does is it helps all these stakeholders move outside of the clinic to the patient where they are. It could be in the field, it could be at a nursing home, it could be in a prison, it could be at a school, um, or it, it can also be used in the clinic as well. But it, you know, it's miniaturizing that kind of clinical equipment you have and being able to go anywhere you want with it to deliver care where it's needed. How, how long does it take um, when I look into the binoculars yeah. for you to tell so me? We, yeah. Our device um, takes you know five to 20 seconds to align it to your face and about okay. 10 seconds to take a measurement. That's so cool. Yeah. That's like instant, because like the examination now is like a pretty, like relatively long process. Yeah. So like 15, 20 minutes. It's like, yeah, five, yeah. 10, and mm -hmm. you know, um, but it's the gold standard, and, and what they're actually yeah. doing is they're they're probing a bunch, they put a bunch of different lenses mm -hmm. in front of your eye, and they, they want to see what your brain prefers. Yeah. Because the true prescription is not just what corrects the optics of your eyes. Interesting. It's but you know, what your brain prefers. So um, you probably have friends who've like gotten a pair of glasses and they go, "Oh, this doesn't make me Give feel me right," a and the, yeah. and they have to switch it out, right? Like the change in the prescription was too much. There's there's and that's the art of of refraction and optometry. What optometrists do, and so that's the gold standard. And but then, uh, how do you factor that in if you're only looking yeah. at the refractor? That's a great question. Rate. So that's yeah. part of the the algorithm design. Um, it's part of how we set up our clinical studies. So mm. we know if someone has like a, like we can measure astigmatism, but when you correct someone's astigmatism, yeah, you, that's <clears throat> you need to to test a lot of these lenses and see what they prefer. So like, we don't advise that you go prescribe off of our device, but our tool gets these um, these eye care stakeholders a better starting point of what your prescription is. So instead of saying which is better, one, two, three, four, five, and taking a long time, yeah. We've really shortened that time because they kind of know you're either this or this, like very yeah. quickly. And you know, for patients who have more simple refraction, um, that's you know, mm. our our device is, is nailing the subjective refraction. They're they're essentially equivalent. So um, clinically speaking, like if you look at the results that we've published, you don't wear glasses. Why did you decide to start this company? Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> we, we get asked that a lot. Um, <laughs> None of the four co-founders wore glasses when we started. Um, Does one of them now because of age? Or? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, we've been at this a long time. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, you know, there, there's always this kind of uh, this theme like, oh, because it's a disease impacted me or my loved one, therefore I must go work on it. And you so know, for us, we're, yeah. we're bioengineers. We're in a program between the government of Madrid and MIT called the, the Madrid uh, MIT M Vision Consortium, mm. and they took research fellows from around the world, 
and we had three-year runways to identify large-scale unmet medical needs mm -hmm. and to try to address them. And we really did the deep diligence into what causes this medical need. Well, first, looking at a variety mm -hmm. of medical needs and what causes this medical need, what are the barriers, and if you could address the need, what would be the real defined clinical impact you would achieve? Yeah. And once you, you know, after six, ten months of work doing that, then you know what to build to have an impact. And so yeah. that was the process. And why did we pick this was one of my co-founders was looking at the global burden of disease list. It comes out mm. from the, is the New England Journal of Medicine or is it the World Health Organization? I forget who puts it out every few years. And it looks at the major causes of mortality and morbidity mm. in the world. And he noticed that it had numbers from 2004 and projected numbers for 2030. Yeah. And it, he saw that in 2004, uh, uncorrected refractive errors was something like the top 14 cause of more uh, morbidity in the world. Oh, Or wow. disability-adjusted life year. Oh, okay. And it was going to be top 10, top 8 by 2030. Oh, wow. Above, like, it was projected to be above, like, diabetes and things that are obviously really impactful. And then, you know, he's actually, his PhD was in... Um, microscopy and advanced optics. So as one of my other um, co-founders. Mm -hmm. So they're looking at the problem. They're like, you know, this is a problem with the eye. We can, we understand optics really well. Yeah. We can, like, let's go dive into it. And the first assumption is, oh, it's because glasses are so expensive. That's why there's mm. so many people. And then when you dive in and you dig deeper, right, you find out that's actually an access problem. It's an access to getting yeah. a prescription, access to getting an exam, access to the eye care professional. And that's where, you know, the light bulb went off where we were like, hey, um, you know, the equipment that's big and expensive and mm. not portable that's stuck in a clinic, we can make it from the ground up, but make yeah. it portable, but keep the clinical accuracy, but make it easier to use and much more affordable. Then we can like go really attack this problem in many settings. Yeah. And, you know, we, we actually came up with multiple ideas. We um, spun out other technologies as well. And one day we were sitting around the table, like, do we want to start this company? Do we want to do this? And, you know, we said, this is going to take a long time. And, you know, we all agreed that this is something we want to do because as bioengineers, you want to have an impact on yeah. human health. And this is a huge problem. It's an underfunded problem. And um, it, it was a hard problem, but we knew if we pushed at it, we were going to have some impact and, like, that's why you train to be a bioengineer, right? Is, is not to have like yeah. the easy path. You want to go attack hard health problems and try to have an impact. So it was, that's, that was the story of, of why, you know? And it's, I think it, uh, it also just boils down to fairness, right? Or justice, your, your, your sense of it. Mm -hmm. Like it's this really affordable solution, low cost prescription glasses changes someone's life and they don't have access to it. Um, just didn't seem fair, and it seemed like we had a chance to, to do something about that. Did, and there's a lot yeah. of people working on this, right? There's a lot of yeah. NGOs and governments. I, I want to give credit to all of them. Our technology helps them build their capacity and their reach to the patients, right? We're, yeah. You know, so we're, we're part of the solution with, along with them, right? But we're trying to make them more efficient and scalable. So with the limited resources they have, they can see more people. And, and when you were in um, this program, did you know that you wanted to be a founder CEO or um, were you were you kind of 
you know, led to that hmm. conclusion after having discovered the vision of what uh, you wanted to achieve? So this is the third technology I've helped spin out of the university. So I'd already okay. kind of had that. I, it was something that was in me f since I was young. I always wanted to be at the interface of research, technology, yeah. and, you know, the actual doing it in the real world. I didn't know the world word entrepreneurship right when I was mm. a kid. Um, but I knew, like, I wanted to have kind of one foot on in both yeah. both worlds. Um, and so I did in, in grad school, I, I helped a prof couple of professors spin out a technology and then um, in, uh, or did a lot of the, the basic groundwork for mm -hmm. them to be able to spin it out. And um, in this program, uh, another co-founder and I um, developed a really cool um, rare cancer cell detection technology um, and we licensed that off into to industry before mm -hmm. founding Plan Optica. So I knew I wanted to have a role. I don't think I had like a, a notion, notion that like I had to be CEO. It was more mm. you want to be a co-founder. You want to attack this problem with other co-founders who are really strong and try to have impact. Um, and what's been like the biggest change I mean, I guess you had done a couple of spin-outs before, but um, what's been the biggest change between being a bioengineer and being CEO of a company yeah, founded? Interesting. Yeah. Um, it, hmm. Well, you know, when you're, let's say, a bioengineer in, in the university, <clears throat> you're in a lab, right? You're mm -hmm. doing the research. You're, you're running the experiments. And when you're a CEO, even if you're a PhD, your job is not to run the experiments, right? Even if you're the CTO, right? Like yeah. you're managing the team, you're helping organize the vision, the research vision and the direction you're going, and you are helping to get the resources so the team can go in that direction. But you know, your job is one that's uh, slightly different, right? Mm. It's not to go make the solutions and run the experiments at the, the chemical bench, right? It's to to make sure that you're, the team is ex executing those experiments to move towards the direction your company wants to do. So that's one is that you're just, you're trained as a bioengineer to be this technical person and read research papers and go do research, mm. but that's not your job as CEO. You have to be aware of research yeah. in the field, um, but you really have to, to manage, right? Um, another thing, I but I think a thing that's the same mm. And this is not just for bioengineering. This is like, I think, engineers and scientists, you're trained to be analytical, right, to problem solve. Mm. Um, when you're a founder, when you're a CEO, right, you're solving many problems, right? Yeah. You're helping the team with many technical problems. You're looking at the marketplace and understanding the technology landscape and analyzing what's working, what's not working, where your opportunity is, right? You're taking voice of customer. Mm. Um, solving people problems right and all that fundamentally goes back to yeah uh, having you know qualitative and quantitative analytical skills having um, you know emotional intelligence and um, empathy um, and I think traditionally it's uh, well yeah I, I think it's it's common now like a lot of scientists and engineers are becoming founders and yeah. entrepreneurs or leaders in industry and that was not the case 20, 30, 40 years ago, right? They were stuck in the R&D side of the companies, but 
now people realize those skills actually do translate to good management. The skills the, you learn in yeah, being a scientist. Yeah, being you know uh, data driven, analytical. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, being able to take multiple sets of data and piece mm. together what your you know what the next move is, right? Like what the landscape is, you know. Um, decision making, right? Like data driven decision making. Yeah. What do you think the gaps are though? The gaps like a, in what sense? Um, so between someone who is a scientist coming in to be CEO versus, mm-hmm. you know, that traditional uh-huh. um you know, consulting uh, background. Oh, no, not consulting. <laughs> uh, I have friends who are consultants. Um, no, they, um, hmm. when you go through, like, science training, right, you, again, you're data-driven, you're quantitative, you're analytical, but you don't get as much training on the dealing with people, right, and dealing mm. with emotions and organizing people around a common vision, right? When you're a grad student, you're doing your experiments, your PhD. You're collaborating with others, so you get some of that, you know, you're managing maybe other students or working with people above you and collaborators at other universities. Um, But it's, that is the biggest place where I think, you know, you need to, to learn more. I think another is sometimes when you're too academic, one can be like too theoretical. Yeah. And like kind of approach the real world, which is messy, right? The real world consists of humans and we're not all rational. Mm. Um, but if you're a, a, a hyperlogical scientist in lab and you think about theoretical physics or you're thinking about your experiment, you just think about it logically, right? You're trying yeah. to understand the universe and physics, um, the laws of nature. But the laws of nature are not irrational, but humans can be irrational. And so when mm. you, you have to understand, like, something, you know, there are practical solutions, right? You have, like, um, yeah. not everyone on your team or the world thinks exactly like you do as, like, this hyper-trained scientist, right? And um, I think that's, that's a big gap, you know? It's that, that emotional intelligence um, and that kind of, like, those soft skills, and soft not as not as in public speaking, because scientists have yeah. to do a lot of public speaking. They're really good at it. We get trained to be really good at it, but it's the not expecting everything to be logical. You know, mm. does that make sense? Yeah, I see what you mean. Um, I see what you mean. Yeah, I, I think I think there were definitely moments of that um, in my journey, yeah. um, because I got our first round of grant funding when I was twenty one. Wow, that's impressive. <laughs> so trying to like figure out how to do management, and then coming from yeah. like a neuroscience background, yeah. I was like, ah, uh, like yeah. a little bit ah, uh, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. like because it's just not something that mm-hmm. comes natural. So then how did you work on it? Um, like, You're not being interviewed on the podcast. Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, I don't know if you had this, but for me, um, personally, it was a lot of trial and error. 
Um, that's not to say I didn't study it. I mm. read probably over a hundred business books, wow. but um, they don't really teach you how to do <laughs> like it, you can't really learn the soft skills from business books, right? Like it's not like yeah. it's not like I can study this and now I'm gonna like know what to do in like the yeah. edge case scenarios yeah. that happen. Yeah. I agree. I mean, here's like another simple analogy. You can map out the physics of riding a bike and read all the books you want. But to ride a bike, you just got to get on and try yeah. as a little kid and trial and error, you're going to fall. And yeah, a lot of, even in business school, like if people who go to business school, it's like mm. they don't come out all of a sudden knowing how to run a business. Right? It's, yeah. Again, it's these frameworks, but the the real challenge of leadership is, you know, how to make decisions mm. um, that still stick to your mission, that balance the needs of stakeholders, that are practical, you know, to make decisions yeah. with imperfect information that can have big consequences on you or your organization or your stakeholders. Like, that's the tough part of management. No matter how yeah. many case studies you read and stuff like that, you get a flavor of it, but it's not until you actually start practicing it, right? That, um, you know, like, in, in basketball, I played a lot of basketball, and you know, if you want to, yeah. if you want to be a good shooter, you go practice shooting, and you know, you get really good at shooting in an empty gym. Great. It's a different level of skill and like kind of calmness that's needed to be able to shoot in a game. Yeah. And it's even different to be able to shoot at the end of the game, you know, when you're trying to hit the game-winning shot, and to to be focused on, you know. And it's even different when it's like game seven of the NBA finals, right? Like, yeah. But how do those great players get there? It's just practice in the gym and then it's practicing in the game and then it's like more and more experience, right? Helps you. So I think that's the key to, to management. There's no one right or wrong mode. You gotta find what's true to your style, um, mm. but also balances the needs of your stakeholders and it's a bunch of trial and error. That's the resilience. That's the cockroach, right? The cockroach. <laughs> um, I mean, so you've had quite a, a, an extensive amount of experience, yeah. um, you know, now being founder, CEO at Planoptica, and then previously in the spin outs. What do you think is the number one thing um, someone should do um, as founder, mm. CEO? And, um, you know, can you share a story yeah. of how you learned about that? Oh. So I think one of the best things any founder can do, um, or anyone can do actually in any position, is find good mentors and advisors. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about the ones who ask for payment and equity and this and that, like people mm -hmm. who just generally care about you or what your organization's yeah. doing and they just wanna help, right? Yeah. And why do you wanna find these mentors and advisors, yeah. even if you're crazy experienced, even if you're wise? Because you, you wanna have more perspective. Yeah. So you, you can get pigeonholed and look at a problem a certain way. Yeah. Uh, the glass is half empty. And someone else can be like, oh, the glass is half full. And someone else can be like, actually, the glass is both half empty and half full, right? Yeah. You can easily trick yourself into one thing and then be like, ah, oh, I'm right. But when you have these advisors, you just get perspective. You get to learn from their wisdom, right? So that's, and, and often, I, I mentor a lot of teams and... Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes there is this, uh, this um, I guess, I, I observe that, you know, people just have this superhero 
complex. They want to solve everything. They don't need help, right? They, they're, they're magical. And I, I think that's not a good approach, you know? Um, and how, do you, how did I learn that? I think uh, that's just one of the blessings of my life. I've always just been surrounded by good friends and family and mentors. Um, sometimes, you know, I had to go search out for them and, and find them, but um, I think, I, you know, I, from a young age, realized there was so much to be learned and so mm. much experience to learn from, so I just had yeah. that natural inclination. But so, yeah, find good mentors. It's going to help you. It's going to, you know, even if they're not, they haven't done exactly what your company's doing, it doesn't matter. It's, you yeah. want someone to, as a coach, to, you know, to, to give you good guidance, sometimes as a cheerleader, when times are rough to, you know, to help push, put some wind in your sails to push you forwards. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, I think that's, that's my number one. And what's your number one thing not to do? <laughs> And can you share a story? Oh, man. Um, so many. But, uh, you know, um, I think we all take, we're so passionate about what we do as founders, right? Mm -hmm. It's easy to take everything personally. Yeah. You know, when someone, an investor says no, or a customer says they don't like your product, or, yeah. you know, you get rejected from a grant, or, you know, someone quits your team. I mean, so many, so many different things, and it's easy to internalize and take it personally and get yeah. bitter and jaded. I think it's natural. It's human nature, but it's like one of the worst things you can do. And that's very easy to say, yeah, right? But we've all experienced that probably in our lives, right? Um, whether professionally or personally. Um, and so that's where you have to step back. You have to talk to mentors. Yeah. You have to reflect. You have to have time to process to gain perspective and then to yeah. kind of laugh at the absurdity of it yeah. and go back to being a cockroach, right? <laughs> like ca calling <laughs> yourself a, a cockroach, yeah. right? Like that's, um, yeah, you know, it's, it's very emotionally and mentally challenging Yeah. to be you, just in management. Life is hard enough. And yeah. when you're in management, it's harder. And when you're like an executive management, it's like even there's more pressure on you and when you're a founder. And that can just, make it, I mean, we, we were at dinner yesterday, right, with the, the, the group of other founders, and mm. one of the fo other founders said that. That was one of the big changes he had to make. And then he said, like, his experience with the startup became so much better, and he had realized this n number of years in, right? Like, he had just couldn't take it personally more and just had to kind of take it with a grain of salt. And, yeah. And he said that just totally shifted his trajectory, right? And I think, you know, I mean, if you think about it, it's funny. Like, when we were kids, we got told this all the time. You get told this in school. And yet, here we are in our 20s, 30s, 40s, and we still take things personally. So it's a hard, hard truth to practice. And you know what? It's also that when you start a company, that company becomes your life, your yeah. identity, who yeah. you are, everything, right? Yeah. And so it's really easy to shake off if someone says, you know, I hate your blue hair yeah. and you don't have... I know, they say that to me all the time. <laughs> it makes me sad. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and because you don't, like, register yeah. that. You don't take yeah. it personally. But then 
Um, when someone like, yeah. I call so I'm in Gen Z, so I call it give it gives you bad vibes. <laughs> <laughs> when someone gives you bad vibes yeah, yeah, about yeah. your company, yeah. you're just like. You, you can you can it can really affect you yeah, yeah like it, it can affect like your entire mood for like yeah. a while yeah you, you take it as an attack on your character yeah right um that's how one internalizes it and it's it's natural right but um yeah it's it's totally natural um but that's where you have to kind of have your you know you have to carve out space whether it's daily or weekly or whatever right I, I hear this from a lot of founders i hear this from a lot of coaches and mentors and you see the athletes do this um there was just a espn article that uh came out a couple weeks ago uh, i'm from northern california so go kings go warriors and it was talking about how steph curry right greatest shooter of all time yeah like has to decompress, he uses golf to decompress. Michael Jordan had his own kind of ways he would do that. Like, even if it's like the day of a game or the mm. day before a game, and, you know, to get that space and, and framework. Um, so you do have to have a little detachment. You know, I know we, we interpret or we take our company and we say, ah, that's my identity, but we actually need to kind of separate from that. That is yeah. part of this myth right that I think like with the Steve Jobs and and all that right like um, but I think when you have a bit of um, distance. distance then you can mm -hmm. be a little more objective and make better decisions not just emotionally driven decisions about what your company should do you know I see what you mean mm -hmm. like yeah. if it's too close it's almost like you can't really make those data-driven decisions that's yeah. needed yeah yeah right like I mean this is like a fictitious example, but like, you know, if the first investor you pitch to says no, right, you could be like, oh my gosh, like I should shut down the company. No, that's not the right decision. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. I'll never raise funding. I'm just not going to raise funding. I'm only going to apply to grants. That's not the right decision, right? Yeah. Like, if you have some objectivity, right? Like, it's, after a while, it's not that you become indifferent and don't care, mm. but you can understand why that investor is saying no. You don't fit their thesis. You don't uh, haven't hit the metrics that they want to see, and um, when you can see it from their perspective, mm. you don't take it as personally. You realize they're also human and fallible. They're not perfect. We're all yeah, and and that helps with that kind of distance and objectivity. I think so. Don't take it too personal. Hard to hard to do, and even for me, you know. But that's yeah. that's the that's the. Was it harder in the beginning and something that you've had to practice? Oh, yeah, yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. And, it, and um, yeah, you know, it, it comes, that's what experience is, right? Is like you fail, <laughs> you mess up, and you learn from it, and you keep going, right? Or you do something right, and you learn from it. And that's why I say, like, get advisors and mentors, right? They have so much experience and stuff, and they help you. Yeah make these realizations and changes faster hopefully but yeah it took it took me a while i'm still working at it you know i'm not perfect uh, by far and i something i talk to are my co-founders with i talk to my team about it i talk to my mentors advisors our board mm -hmm. like i'm very open about you know it's a process right everyone's on a process of growth in every organization and once you kind of accept that view then it's you know 
easier to put work in to try to make, you know, in the positive direction instead of the negative direction. Yeah. Yeah. And what, what are kind of the next stages for you mm. in your growth with Planoptica? Yeah, so, you know, Planoptica is, um, like I said, we're blessed to have amazing supporters and team mm -hmm. and um, companies we work with. And um, so right now we sell our product in something like 40-plus countries. <clears throat> it's been used on, we estimate, like, five or more million, five million or more people in the last mm -hmm. four-ish years. Um, and our next steps is, you know, we're developing new technologies, new products that we want to accelerate and bring to market to continue to have impact and care. We want to get into more countries. We want to go deeper. Um, you know, um, it's, you know, an amazing feat to have a, a technology be used on, let's say, 5 million people. Yeah. But when you realize the problem is 1.1 billion, at least, right, and there's 4 billion people who also wear glasses, yeah. that's not even a drop in the bucket, mm. right? So... Um, how do you make better technologies that scale even more, right? That help really impact this problem. That's where Planoptica is going. We have very cool stuff we're working on, um, mm. and you know we have we we publish a lot of our research. So like uh, last year, um, two of our PhD engineers published in Nature Scientific Reports on some of the advanced algorithms we're developing that help go this. So we're we're developing hardware and algorithms and. We're also working with NGOs on new healthcare delivery models. Um, and I've, I've talked a lot about the global health work, but we're also doing the same in high-resource countries. Mm. Um, it's not always easy to get access to the eye care professionals. So how can we bridge that and make it even easier even in high-resource countries in addition to low- and middle-income countries? So that's, that's where Planoptica is going. New technologies, more impact, um, you know, We've been growing our revenue steadily over the last four years. We want to yeah. keep doing that um, and accelerate that and uh, and grow the team. Yeah. And what is the number one impact you want to leave on the world with Planoptica? It would be that. Uh, so this is something the founders agreed with when we we discussed before spinning out, just to make sure we were aligned and what was our mm -hmm. north star. And that impact was, you know. Building, uh, building technologies that can reach the most amount of people and help them get glasses. We don't have a number. We just want to, as, as large as we can, right? But that's yeah. it. It's to help improve people's lives by getting them quality, you know, vision exams and helping improve the, their access to eyeglasses. So in addition to the Health Creators community, you'll also find everything you need on healthcreators.co. That includes our educational tracks, vendor selection tools, CRO databases, and even which investors you should be talking to. When you log into healthcreators.co, you'll also have direct access to New Root for clinical development and a bunch of other resources you need to build better companies in healthcare.